just one person to make a difference in one life for that to just kind of be the domino effect. And it really is about kindness. Continue to share love and be there for others. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality healthcare through policy action and partnerships. Our primary objective is to prioritize the patient voice and health system delivery reform to achieve person-centered care. We are dedicated to amplifying the powerful stories of individuals and the collective needs of various communities across the country. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman. Today, I get the pleasure of chatting with two patient advocates who are making a huge impact in their communities because they have realized and harnessed their own power. First up is Jessica Jones, our own real life superhero, who is a self-proclaimed Raptivist, which is short for Random Acts of Kindness Activist. On top of serving her community, she also spends time loving on her husband and two sons. Thank you for joining us, Jessica. Tell us a little bit about the town of Trafalgar, Indiana, where you live. It's a very rural community. Um, we are about 40 minutes south of Indianapolis, so our biggest city, and then about 30 minutes away from any larger city. So like even going to a supermarket such as Kroger or Walmart, you have to do some traveling. You know, it's small enough that everybody knows everybody. So when something happens in our town or someone's down on their luck, usually, you know, the neighbors are pretty good about pitching in and helping out where they can. I'm from New York City, so I'm not used to that, like rural, like everyone knows everyone. So I love meeting people who are um, from communities like that. What are some of the biggest issues people in your area encounter when they're looking for good healthcare. We don't have any specialists around here. So, um, you know, if you need to get to a heart doctor or a diabetes specialist or any kind of specialty doctor, you have to go to the city, which is at minimum an hour away, sometimes longer to due to traffic and other circumstances, construction. We do have a couple local doctors that have recently moved into town. Um, so we thankfully have moved them in for, as far as primary care. But the need is so great down here because we are such a rural area there they can only take so many patients so then that it starts to get overfilled and they're not able to see everyone that has a need we have people that need specialty and they need regular doctors and they don't have other social needs that go into the factor of their health and needing to meet those. That is the common answer <laughs> that I get, you know, uh, through doing these interviews and through speaking with people. One of the earlier podcast episodes that we did included an interview with Beth Madison, who's based in Tennessee, and she actually has to drive four hours across a whole state border to get care for her rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. So your response is right in alignment, you know, with what she also expressed as well. For you and your family, have you all ever been in a situation where you had to seek specialty care? And what was that like for you all? In my specific 
reasonings for becoming a patient advocate. Um, I myself was born with Hirschsprung's disease, which is pretty rare. Um, and then in 2016, my son became ill with Kawasaki disease, which is 100% treatable while rare. Um, unfortunately, he wasn't treated in time, so it resulted in giant aneurysms in his heart. So that also is something that requires some really specialized care. And um, so both of us frequently have to make trips to the city. Um, last year, we actually went all the way to Boston um, to go see a special heart specialist for my son, just because granted, we do have Riley Children's Hospital, which is a really great children's hospital and Peyton Manning's Children's Hospital. While they're both over an hour away from us, um, the care that he was needing just wasn't something specialized in. So we had to leave the state and go find somewhere else. We ended up talking to multiple children's hospitals in other states to see which one would fit us best for what we needed and to then ultimately decided to go to Boston. Was that something that you only had to do once or is your trip to Boston something that has to happen every year or reoccurring? So our trip there was as a second opinion. We had made the choice that we needed a second opinion because giant aneurysms in the heart isn't something that you see in a child very often. So we went out there as a second opinion and then they were going to take over treatment into where we were going to fly out every six months. However, unbeknownst to us, we got home and this trip happened September, 2019. Um, and then we had plans on returning in March, 2020, but in January of 2020, my son went in for emergency open heart surgery. Oh my goodness. So that means that your son's care was also impacted by COVID because you said that trip was supposed to be in March of 2020. So how is everything going with your son now? So we um, stay in contact virtually with his doctors, thankfully. And then we have made the purchases of blood pressure cuff, an O2 monitor, and that was to manage to keep an eye on his blood pressure and keep an eye on his oxygen levels because we couldn't but during the high parts of COVID to get his vitals checked because it would be riskier to take him in. So we were doing that at home, but we were virtually um, talking with his doctors. We have yet to go into the hospital and see doctors and we, we were fortunate enough that he had his post-op visit right before COVID hit. Since then, we've just, yeah, kind of been managing everything at home, trying to keep him, you know, safe and as safe as possible. I'm not a mom yet, so I can't even imagine what it's like to navigate these types of situations. So I truly commend you for all the tough decisions that you make, both as a mom and a caregiver. Oh, I, I know you mentioned that this journey with your son influenced your work as a patient advocate. So how do you serve your community in that role of an advocate? Let me start from the beginning. So when I first identified why I wanted to be a patient advocate was because I was lost in the system. It got to a point where I was dealing with my own health issues. My son was sick now. I was working full time. My husband was working full time. And then we get hit with all these medical bills. We get hit with all these diagnoses we didn't understand. Um, and I work in the healthcare field <laughs> and I'm sitting here going, oh my gosh, is this really happening? Like, 
I, if I can't understand this, how are patients understanding this? It's not fair. It started with helping people understand their insurance. A few friends calling me saying, you know, I got this bill and I don't understand why. I'd say, okay, come over. And we would sit there and we'd go through it together. It got to a point where people just get so, so confused and it, it is confusing. Our system is so messed up. It was done that way. So people could get so confused and they just go, oh, well, I'm confused. So I'm just going to let it be. And then it grew to someone would call me and say, I can't afford my prescription this month. Do you know who I can call or where, where can I go? So then <laughs> I would start making phone calls for them or I would, you know, find out what, what can I do to help? Every day I would find a different way I could do things. So if I could help cover their meals for the day, that would in turn help them buy that medicine they needed. And then now it's kind of grown into, I have a community of people on Facebook. I think the last time I looked at it's grown to like over 600 people. So now it's like, it's expanded past my own community. <laughs> and that's okay. I don't, you know, I'm happy with that. I think there's something really magical about that. And that's why I really admire our patient advocates like you and Becky Barnes, um, who do this day in and day out and really understand that even as one individual, your impact is so much larger than you can even imagine. Absolutely. Last year, I tried to hold a little health fair. I thought I was going to enroll people. So I advertised it on social media. I put up little fires around town and I sat in that library for the posted times that I had. One person showed up. I helped that one person for four hours. Wow. And that whole time we were there, we went through every single detail of what she was choosing why she was choosing it. And then we talked about her family and how her sister had insurance problems and maybe her sister could use, you know, come in and get help. So then the, she ended up emailing me after that as well. And we went over it, but I felt so defeated after that because I came back on the advocate um, Facebook page and I was like, oh, I only had one person come to my health fair. Like, oh, I'm so bummed. And then Donna was like, but that was one person. <laughs> you got it, one person. And I was like, why are you so happy? Yeah. <laughs> but, but then, you know, it is one person. And then you have to kind of turn it around and look at it as, it's going to change their life. And then that life changer moment is going to move on and that's going to affect someone else. It's going to make a difference and it's going to grow and we're going to be able to be better and make a better future. So I'm really excited for that and seeing the movement and power of how it is just one, but one makes a difference. Yes. I love that. One makes a difference. Even though you said you felt defeated in that moment, you didn't let that stop you. You know, you didn't say, well, I'm not doing this anymore because this didn't work out. Because uh, here we are almost a year later and you're still doing this work. How has your advocacy changed with COVID? Because of COVID, we've seen a lot of um, community changes. A lot of people's lost jobs. Um, or been laid off or hour changes affecting their families. The people that lose their jobs can afford food, things like that. So we have brought Gleaners Food Bank to our community um, twice now, and we have a third time scheduled for September. I reached out to my clerk treasurer. She's been a great friend to me. 
and she is fabulous. So I encourage anyone to outreach to your community leaders and see if they'd be willing to um, partner with you because it really made the difference having them on my side. We were able to identify a good location because the cleaner's food truck is quite big. It's actually a semi. So you have to have a large parking lot to have the truck come in. I've had people coming up saying, because of you guys, I got groceries this week and now I bought my medicine or I was able to go to the doctor because I need to go to the doctor. And so it's, it's small things that we don't see um, as making a big difference that really does make a big difference. There's been some people that can't make it to the cleaner's food. I myself will grab some food and take it to them or, you know, we had some of the town cops volunteers, so they were driving food around. So it's just, it's been a really great partnership so far. So I'm really, really excited about what the future holds and how else we can build it. That's awesome. People who are in a similar situation of having that desire of making a difference to to do partnerships, you know, mm -hmm. and that's something that you could have pulled off by yourself. But by, like you said, needing that bigger space and possibly needing permit, just those partnerships, how much farther you can go when it's, you know, two heads combined instead of Absolutely, one. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's really powerful. You are truly getting creative when it comes to helping people with their social needs, which basically has a domino impact yep. on their health care as well. Absolutely. In an area of town that they just don't have transportation, the doctors are far, or they were scared to get out because of COVID, so they didn't want to risk it. They were elderly population. We're in a very rural area, so internet isn't great. So they call their doctors, and the doctors say, well, we have virtual visits, so let's just, you know, do virtual with you. Well, you have these elderly people saying, uh, I don't know how to do virtual, or I don't have internet, so... But the library was closed due to COVID. So we had called the library director and asked if they could brought in their bandwidth there here in town to expand to the parking lot, just so that people that didn't have internet at home, but needed to use the internet, whether it was filling out an application online for food assistance or finding resources online or attending that virtual doctor's appointment. So thankfully with the library support and word of mouth, we were able to make it grow and happen. I was naive to how big of a difference something so small could make because mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't see it that way before. That is genius. Asking the library to expand their bandwidth. And that's another partnership. So I see that partnerships have been uh, really crucial and integral in your advocacy work. Yeah, it's all about just asking. Two, three years ago, I would have been, you would have asked me to email or ask something of someone. I would have been like, okay, they go, let me send this little baby email and be like, hey, can you? If not, that's okay. And now I guess I'm more aggressive. I'm going to give you a reason to not say no, because maybe if you understand why it's important, then you'll say yes. So I try to include that in there. Like, hey, if you do this, this benefits this, and then later down their line, it's gonna benefit you too. Wise words spoken by a true advocate in action. Jessica's tenacity and drive continues to inspire me. And the best part is, her story isn't an anomaly. NPAF collaborates with hundreds of advocates across the country who are change makers. 
In Act 2 of this episode, you'll get to meet Rebecca Barnes, who has been an advocate for over 10 years. She is a mom of four who enjoys genealogy, decorating her home, and has found a newfound passion for filming TikTok videos with her daughter. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Becky. Tell us a little bit about your hometown. And thank you for that. I appreciate it. I am from rural eastern Kentucky, a little town called Pikeville. It is a beautiful town. Um, right at the foothills of the Appalachians. It was a great place to grow up. Being from New York, I love hearing about the beauty, you know, that different states have to offer. Tell us a little bit about some barriers and challenges uh, that people in your community face. There are quite a few challenges. It is starting to get a little bit better, but we do only have one hospital in Pikeville. And then there are some other rural hospitals that are nearby, but that's the main one. Uh, they do now have a cancer care clinic that we did not have before, but they do not do stem cell transplants or major types of uh, surgeries and things that would need to be done in a larger hospital. And so the largest hospital closest to us is about two and a half, three, three and a half hours away, which is in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, the issue with that, of course, is that there's a high poverty rate back at home. Uh, there's not a lot of jobs available for people there. They have to travel long distances just to get to work. And so if anyone does get sick, a lot of them do have to unfortunately make that drive in to Lexington. And so you got to think about um, taking off work if they are working, not getting paid for that gas money there, you know, having to eat out while you're there. And then, of course, hotel expenses. So it, it can get pretty expensive. Um, if you are sick and need care outside of um, Eastern Kentucky and have to go to the city. Have you ever had to experience navigating the health system and the different barriers, like you said, with distance and transportation, either you personally or with family members? Uh, my sister was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma winter of 2001. At that time, they didn't really have the type of care that she needed at the hospital. So mom and dad would have to take off work and they would have to, you know, make the three hour journey to Lexington. And it was an expensive thing to do, you know, making sure your insurance did cover what you had in another city, in another hospital with other doctors. And of course, the way that the um, healthcare runs now used to, you know, you go to the hospital and you get one bill and then you'd be like, okay, this is the one bill that I have to pay. And, you know, if you've never had a serious illness where you have to have dif different doctors of specialties and, you know, go, go to different areas, then you don't know that. And so um, that of course was an issue. You get a, a bill from the radiologist, the oncologist, the hematologist. Um, and then you'd have all these multiple bills and you may think, oh, I've I've got all these bills taken care of. And then, you know, three years later, it's like on my credit report. What is this? Yeah. $50,000 for what? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Your parents had to alter their lives a bit, you know, and, and take off of work and make different heart decisions. And so what did you find was your role when your sister was diagnosed? How did you play a part in, in her caregiving? I mean, obviously, I was just there for mom and dad and my sister just as, you know, a shoulder to lean on to, so to speak. I was my sister's uh, stem cell donor. Mm. So that was very interesting into the fact that at the time, that was the only thing that they thought that could save my sister. And yet the insurance company did not want to 
pay for it, did not think that she needed it. And she was able to eventually get a medical card that helped with paying for that. But it was definitely a struggle. Is that what led you to becoming an advocate? Seeing everything that my sister went through, like first person, like, you know, there with her and with mom and dad. Um, I, I believe that it was that and not only that, but you get really close to the other families that are there um, that are there with you. People in Eastern Kentucky are really close. Families are. And so you, you typically don't just have like your mom or dad come. You may have your mom and dad and your sister or your cousin, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, somebody's sick. We're all going. Yes. And, it's a family um, affair. <laughs> it's a family affair. And at the time they, they did not have the Hope Lodge, which they have now, which is a place that families can stay. You have so many people coming from rural areas that these places typically are booked in advance. There's no room to even stay there. So just seeing other people struggle, like, oh, you know, I had to sleep in the car last night because you know, we didn't have room for a hotel or I've ate donuts and coffee uh, for breakfast the past five days because I don't have money to go get food. It broke my heart. And my sister was the same way. She was like, there is no reason in the United States that we should have people that are living like this. Uh, she wanted to set up like a fund where when people came into the hospital, they would be able to get a free gas card, a, a hotel voucher. She's spending money to go get things, you know, that they need personal items while they're out and about. When you're in the middle of having to worry about your health, the last thing you want to worry about is your finances. My dad um, actually worked for the collections department at the bank and we were at Marquee Cancer Center in Lexington in the family kitchen. And he goes, oh, no, I forgot to pay my mortgage. And I was like, oh, my God, what made you remember? And he was like, I got an email from myself saying that Scrappy Barnes, you're, you need to pay your mortgage. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, just seeing other people in hard spots and being like, somebody needs to do something. And then she passed away. And I was like. I've got to do something, you know, to take this very sad situation and be able to help other people. That's what you should do. I mean, that just, it's, it was cathartic. There's so many things that I love about what you said. One, you know, the fact that when you're worried about your health, you don't have time or even the capacity <laughs> to worry about your finances. If I'm in the hospital no, I'm not worried about a mortgage, a car payment, credit cards. No, I'm worried about living to see the next day. And then also the cost that comes with that is, is a whole nother financial burden mm -hmm. on top of that. And the fact that this is a constant thought on people's hearts and at the top of people's minds is just unfair. Over the years of being an advocate, how has your advocacy evolved? I have lost my job. And so... Um, I went, I've been going through the, the unemployment area, but also the fact that now it is considered, I guess, a life-changing event is the pandemic. And so they have opened up enrollment for people to apply for um, health care. And I have been helping people get signed up on free and reduced cost health care, which has been great. And also get them signed up on unemployment. Once again, you are just... The epitome of selfless. What keeps you going in, in times that are hard for yourself? Like you said, like right now you're dealing with unemployment. So what keeps that fire and drive within you 
to help others when you yourself might even need help in this moment. It's helping the other people that helps me. I look at it as it's not just happening to me. Whatever happens in your life, you're never the only one going through that struggle. And it's a matter of like reaching out and helping them. Well, even even if there's stuff going in on my life, I mean, if I can do something to help someone else, I mean, that's that's what we're here for is to help other people, you know. And so long as you live your life that way, then it, it has meaning. That's beautiful. I wish we all thought that way. I think our world would be a way better, healthier, happier place if we thought that way. And you just say it so freely and so openly and just so matter of fact, like it just it's natural to you. Like this is just who you are. And I don't know. And I feel like sometimes when people say things like that, they don't realize that they're they're special, (laughs) you know, like not everyone thinks like you, Becky. And what are some lessons that you've learned along the way, being a patient advocate, being there for others, being there for your sister? The biggest lesson is giving people space to be where they are. When I first started out on this journey with my sister, like I'd be like, oh, you need to eat. Why aren't you eating? Well, I mean, I was totally not empathizing with the fact that she had chemotherapy she was not hungry or that the cancer had moved to her stomach I was just like why are you being so selfish you need to eat you know like you won't get better all I can think of is that when people are going through struggles sometimes we're at least for me I'm so much like okay what can I do to fix this but sometimes people just need you to not say anything and just sit back and allow them space to be exactly where they are. Like, let them know it's okay to be sick. Let them know that they may have financial issues right now, but just just let them be where they are. And when they're ready to take on those things, then you be there for them at that point. But until then, you just hold space for them wherever they are. You know, that's been a hard lesson. That's really beautiful. And I think that's something that we can apply in every situation, you know, not just being a caregiver. But my sister definitely taught me because I guess at that time she had two weeks to live and I'd come in to visit and um, I had not been sleeping well because I was just so worried about her and about mom and dad. And, you know, she had come home and she was on hospice and I just like curled up in bed with her. And I think I slept like 12 hours. Dude, she's like, sis, are you sick or something? And I didn't want to tell her I've not been sleeping. I was like, no, I'm just really comfortable with you. And and uh, I said, I'm sorry, because like you try to think about things to say to someone who is terminally ill and words are just, you, I mean, you you. It just didn't seem right to be like, oh, how are you today? How do you think they're feeling? You know, just and so I just would be like, I love you. And I was crying and I was like, I'm sorry, I don't have anything to say. I just don't know what to say. And then she started crying and she was like, you don't how nice it don't know how nice it is to have somebody come in here and not just like keep on talking and talking. And she was like, I'm already tired. But for someone just to come in here and sit with me and just watch TV with me, my sister opened my eyes to so many things. Just a blessing in so many ways. What is your greatest hope for your community and for healthcare in this country? I really just hope that people, with everything that's been going on this year, because it's been such a, a year of change for 
everyone. I, I don't think it's not affected everyone. And I do think it is uh, opening to people. Like I'll post, you know, does everybody have face masks? Does anybody need face mask? Or, um, you know, uh, someone posted, uh, you know, I'm elderly, I'm senior citizen, and they're not running like they used to meals for wills, and I'm hungry. And I'm just like, oh, you know, it just, but then all of a sudden you see all these people like, okay, what do you need? Or, Oh, I, I'm making face masks. Oh, I'll make them for free. How many? I'll drop them off on your door and like complete strangers. And so my hope is that from this year is that people will see a way of networking and helping each other, even strangers, of how much we can do for people in our community that we don't even know. Such simple, easy gestures, you know, like if you can, if you know how to do unemployment, if you can help someone walk their way through. If you know how to apply for Medicaid, Medicare online, that you help people that, you know, so my hope with, with, with healthcare is just basically that we see that it, it should be in this day and age, it should be something that we all have. It shouldn't be that just because you have more money, you have the right to live and have good, you know, doctors and a better chance of living because you have more money. I think that that we should all be able to have health care, that that should be a right for all of us. And my hope is, is that because of this year and a lot of people who maybe, you know, were in a really good spot that aren't anymore have been taken down on their knees like, oh, oh my God, what is this like? But I need help. You maybe didn't feel that everyone deserved health care before, but I'm betting you by the end of this year, a lot of people will not be so judgmental of, of that fact that we all deserve health care. Thank you so much, Becky. This has been amazing. This is one of my favorite parts of my job is getting to talk with people who get up every day and live with the purpose of helping someone else. And you are the epitome of that. You, Jessica Jones, all of the rest of MPAF's advocates, you all make life worth living. So thank you so much for being who you are. You are way too sweet. Thank you very much. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org slash podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.